Please go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy. We're in a series called Reality, and the whole purpose of the series is that we would begin letting the reality of God's Word shape the reality of our lives, and we would not allow culture or other things to do that. And so we're going through God's Word, and we're just saying, what does it say, and then what are the implications for that for our life? What does that mean? And so today we're looking at, uh, we're actually looking at the Word of God um, and what God's Word says about that. And so as we look at this letter, 2 Timothy, this letter is written by Paul, and he's in prison at this moment. Uh, it's towards the end of his life. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. He's writing to his child of the faith, uh, Timothy. And these are, are basically his last words, last words that we have. And these are his last, uh, what we know is communication to Timothy. So what is it that Paul wants to communicate to Timothy, his, his child? One thing he, he doesn't say is that, well, well Timothy, I'm, I'm in prison. And it, it, the gospel, I'm in prison for preaching the gospel. And Christianity is very hard. It's very difficult. And I think you should get out. He doesn't say it's too hard. He doesn't say go for an easier road. He doesn't say believe something else. Rather, Paul, while he's in prison, because he's preached the gospel, encourages Timothy to stand more firm in the gospel, to preach the gospel and exhort it to others and be even more bold. And here in chapter 3, which is where we're going to be, he begins warning him about deceitful people, people who will slither their way into churches, into uh, a gathering of believers, and they will cause division and they will begin preaching a false gospel and so timothy and so paul's going to warn timothy about this and he's going to exhort him to stand firm and this is very much a reality of 2014 also this is exactly what we're facing in the sense that false gospels were preached in the churches 2,000 years ago, and it happens today. Inside and outside the church, inside and outside the Christian community, uh, we're bombarded with lies of Satan. We are, whether it's in culture or, or however it comes about, there are lies that seem to continue to attack the church, and Satan is very successful at destroying churches, especially when he's able to, um, to sneak people within the gathering of churches, and they begin pro, uh, proclaiming a false gospel. And these people often appear to be godly, but they are ungodly. They look nice, they talk well, and their words sound very convincing, but they're full of deceit. This is a reality that happened 2,000 years ago, and it's a reality that happens today. In fact, when I was living in Michigan, there was, um, in Grand Rapids, about 70 miles north of us, a large mega church led by a pastor, and he started making, in about 2003 or 2004, uh, certain videos that just took off, and uh, it seemed like every youth group was getting them, and uh, Christian bookstores were handing them away for free, and uh, I, I watched some of them, and some of them were okay. Some of them were like, wow, that's, that's not bad. But then others, I was just going, that's, that's not right. There's, there's something missing here. It seems like it's, it's moving past the gospel into something else. And then a few years ago, this, this same pastor, he wrote a book titled Love Wins, in which basically said there is no hell, there is no punishment for sin, or no lasting punishment for sin. And he defined God through a sinful, selfish, unbiblical, twisted version of love. 
Now he's left his church. He lives in San Diego or somewhere in Southern California, regularly appears on Oprah, and he is uh, continuing to preach his feel-good prosperity gospel and is continually taking more and more people into the whole of lies with him. This is very real. This is what happens. In fact, um, when I was in Michigan, one of the guys that was, that was with us at that church was from a church in Michigan, uh, or from a church in Grand Rapids, that this pastor was a part of and planted out of. And so it, it was, there was connections all around, and he, he was affirmed by the church to go plant this other church. We have to be very careful. Within the church, Satan is trying to cause great division. So what are we to do? How do we prepare ourselves to stand firm against false gospels? How do we stand firm against those who are going to be preaching them, who will ultimately be deceiving Christians? Because they will make their way into the churches today. They will try to make their way into Timberline. This is a real threat, and many churches right now are being destroyed. And today, in churches that are gathering, especially here in America, there are these type of deceivers who are making their way. It's happening right now. This is a very real threat. And so, so what do we do? And so that's what Paul, in his last words, he, he exhorts Timothy in many things. And this is one of the things, uh, one of the topics he covers. And so we're going to read chapter 3. And primarily we're going to f- focus on verses 14 through 17. But I want us to read from verse 1 and get the idea of the entire argument that Paul is making here. And so... One of the things we do here is we stand in the reading of God's Word. So I want to invite you to stand with me as we read. We are going to read 17 verses. That is quite a bit. If you get tired, take a seat. That's okay. You can stand, sit, stand, you know, just, you know, take intervals. Verse 1. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Notice that, having the appearance of godliness. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. Just as James and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was, those, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, 
equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to you. And God, we're looking at your word and what your word says about your word. And, and Father, I pray, give us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. May your spirit be about us today. And, and God, I pray that we fall more deeply in love with your word today. I pray that we truly treasure it more than gold. We consider it sweeter than honey. That God, as a church today, we, we grow in love for your word. I pray, work in our lives as we go through your word this morning, as we preach and we study it. God, I pray right now, just as, as we listen, that God, you would bind Satan. That he wouldn't deceive us. That we wouldn't believe lies. That we wouldn't discount your word. But that, God, we would believe what your word says. And God, I pray for conviction of sin in our lives today. I pray that, God, where there are areas of hardness, where there are areas of bitterness, where there are areas of, of stubbornness to your word, that, God, you soften us and you draw us to your word. God, help us to yearn for your word, to love it, to want it, to need it. God, be with us this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So we're going to look at what Paul says to Timothy. So we're, we're going to take his instructions and also apply them to us. And so number one, as Paul tells Timothy to remain in God's Word, we're going to say every believer is to remain in God's Word. Look at verse 13. This is, a, this is an important verse. He says, evil people, and, and basically he's just described all these evil people. He said, these evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. So they, there's a progression of evil. They're bad, and they're going to get more evil. That's, that's the progression that they're taking. They're deceiving, and they're also being deceived in their deceiving. And then he says in verse, in verse 14, but as for you, so there's a contrast. These evil people are continuing to grow more and more and more evil. Then he turns to Timothy. He says, they're ungodly. You are godly. And you are to continue in the word of God. Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. So the opposite of progressing in evil, of what Paul has just described, is the remaining. That's actually what the word continue means. It means remain in the word of God. To abide in the word of God. Do not advance past the word of God. Do not add to it, but remain in the word of God. Paul says, remain in what you have learned and firmly believe. Not just what you've learned, not just knowledge, but what you've believed, what you've learned to be true. Remain in the gospel, that you have knowledge, that you may have knowledge and, and, be, and fully trust in God. And Paul gives two reasons why, Paul, why Timothy should remain in the gospel. He actually gives four reasons, but I'm going to break it up a little differently. So the first, first reason Remain in the Bible because of the testimony of those who have taught you and gone before you. So there, there's these false teachers, and, there, and there's these false deceivers that are going to be coming, these deceivers who are going to be making their way in to the church. They're going to be proclaiming a different gospel. And so Timothy says, don't, or Paul says to Timothy, don't be deceived. Remain in the gospel. Remember, number one reason, remember of those who have gone before you. 
Paul has taught Timothy much about God's word. We saw earlier in in verse 10 that Timothy has followed Paul's teaching, his conduct, his aim in life, his faith, his patience, his love, and so forth. So Paul says, continue in the word of God because of what I have taught you and you have seen me live out the gospel before you. Just think about that. Do you know that your life is a powerful testimony to others about the gospel? Your life is. As believers, our lives are testimonies to others about the power of the gospel. Think about how wonderful it would be if we were all able to say, remain in the gospel because of what you've seen in my life. Remain in the gospel because of how I've taught it. Remain in the gospel because of how you've seen it has transformed me. Remain in the gospel. You've seen it in my life, Timothy. You've seen how much I need the gospel, how desperate I am for it, and how it has transformed me. Remain in the gospel. Think about that. And then Paul says, remain in God's word because you have learned the sacred scriptures since childhood. Most likely now he's referring to his mom and his grandma who he mentioned in chapter 1. And he says, don't just remain in the word of God because of me, Timothy, and because of my life and what you've seen. But remember your mom. Remember your grandma. Remember your family who has taught you the word of God. Paul is telling Timothy, remain in the scriptures, remain in the word, because of the testimony of your family. Don't miss this. This is a reason, a theological reason, Paul is giving for Timothy to remain in the scriptures. I I hope you hear this. Parents, if you're here, you are the primary spiritual teachers of your children. I am not. The, the Sunday school teachers downstairs are not. Our nursery workers are not. And it would be ridiculous if we are, for we have your kids about one to two hours a week. I hope we all eat more than that. We are not your spiritual. No, we're called to equip, and, and, and I know they're doing a great job, and they love your children, and, and we want to equip. But we are not. You're, if you send your, school, your kids to a, a Christian school, they're not your primary kids' spiritual teachers. But you are. Throughout the Bible, especially in the, the Old Testament, we see how much family is called to teach their children about the Word. You have been given the wonderful privilege by God to share the gospel with your kids. To be, so be encouraged. Your Christ-exalting, faith-driven life will powerfully affect your children will powerfully affect your children do not miss the fact i mean just i don't want us to glaze over one of the reasons paul says timothy remain in scripture is because of your family because they taught you the word because you saw it lived out with them i want to clarify this doesn't mean parents that we live a perfect life it doesn't mean that at all but rather what it means is that even when we fall short of short of god's glory and when we sin that we ask forgiveness, and, and we should do it in front of our kids also. We should let them see us seek repentance, either with our spouse or even with them. Yesterday, I was with the kids, and I don't remember what it was. They're playing some Wii game. I'm trying to do something else. It's, it's not going well. You know, they need help. I'm outside. I have dirt on me because I'm planting plants. And, and they're like, we need you to come inside. And it's something they know how to do. And so I was abrasive with them. So I'm out there like planting the plants. You know, like. And then like I go back inside and I'm like, 
I go, Ben, Hannah, I'm sorry. Like, I was abrasive with you guys. And Ben's like, what's abrasive? <laughs> so much easier to apologize when you don't know what I'm saying. Um, so I walked through, and, and, you know, then I was like, well, I was kind of strict with you. What's strict, Dad? All right, son, I was a jerk, and so this is what happened. <laughs> so but I walked through, but I said, you know, I, I'm sorry. And I said, will you forgive me? And they're like, of course, Dad, we'll forgive you. But parents, we need to do that. We teach our kids about Christ, not by living perfect lives, but by showing our kids how dependent we are on God's love and His grace and teaching them that. One last word about this. Parents, read your Bible with the kids, with your kids. Read it over and over and over with them. Talk with them about it and pray with them. I gave you two. So this is, this is our first Bible. This is the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is the best children's Bible you can buy. I will tell you, it's the best one you can buy. Every single story connects to Christ. Every single story. It's not be like David. He beat, he beat up Goliath, so we should be like, no. David typifies Jesus who is to come. We are to ultimately be like Jesus. Every story in here ties into the theme of Christ and why he came and who he is and what he's done for us. This is an amazing Bible. My kids and I have read it over and over again. It is falling apart. My kids know that every single scripture brings back to Christ. And they don't know it perfectly. But we've gone through that Bible a lot. Now we're trying a different Bible. It's God's big, big picture interactive Bible storybook. It's got a lot more stories in it. Um, that one has less stories, more pages um, per each story. This one basically has one story per page. But every single time when you get to the bottom, and they're not the greatest questions, but they, they link it to Christ. They link it to the big picture. Where does this story fall in to the grand theme of God's redemptive story? What's happening? These are great. So we walk through, and we, we read, and then we pray over it. And, and you know what? Sometimes I'm like, it is ridiculous. Like, I see, that, like, can God be glorified in this at times? Like, you know, Caleb's bouncing up and down, hanging over the, uh, over the couch, and sometimes Hannah's tickling him, and, and Ben sometimes, like, you know, I don't know what he's doing. Uh, sometimes I feel like Steph or I aren't engaged in this, but you know what? We, we, we try to be consistent. And we try to pray through it. And there's times I think we do an amazing job with it. There's times I'm like, man, I think we just did it. And I don't even know if it was good at all. But I just want to encourage you, go through. Because what we're seeing now, and, and we're not doing it great, but we're trying. We have a lot to learn. We're just trying to learn to raise them with God's word, that they see how important it is, and that they love it also. And they're beginning to see that. They're beginning to see that. I want to encourage you. To do that with your family. And I look forward to the day I don't have to use these. I look forward to the day that I can use this. I do. I look forward when I have, you know, the real 66 books in front of us. And I look forward to that. But this is great. It's providing a foundation. I want to encourage you. Parents, read with your kids. And if you're a young parent, you want to know these books, then I'll come and make sure you, you know exactly what they are. If you're a grandparent, buy them for your kids. Buy them for your kids. Especially the first one, the... Uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's an amazing Bible. In fact, I would give that to adults who just come to know Christ. Amazing Bible for adults who come to know Christ. Um, that's the first reason. 
Paul says, remain in the word because, to Tim, Paul gives Timothy, remain in the word because those who have gone before you and who have taught you. Number two, remain in the Bible because it has the power to save you. In verse 15, we're told, the sacred writings, meaning the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So, the primary purpose of the Bible, as we read it, is not the transfer of knowledge. It's not just gaining knowledge, it going into our minds and us saying, wow, now I know, you know where Israel went and how the Exodus happened and those kind of things. But the primary purpose of the Bible is that we would encounter God and ultimately be saved through Christ Jesus. That's the purpose when we read the Bible. It is through God, it's through the Bible God reveals who He is. It reveals what he has done and why he does what he does. And ultimately, the Bible, it reveals that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, left heaven, came to earth to die on a cross, that we who believe in him by grace would be saved and have eternal life with him. The Bible is the story in which God rules. That's what he does. He rules by his word. That's how he rules. And he rules for his glory. That's why he does it. It's ultimately all about God, who He is, and what He's done. Kevin DeYoung wrote, The purpose of Holy Scriptures is not ultimately to make you smart, to make you relevant, or make you rich, or make you get a job, or get you married, or take all your problems away, or tell you where to live. The aim is that you might be wise enough to put your faith in Christ Jesus and be saved. That's the point. When we come to God's Word, we're encountering God. So Timothy, remain in the Word of God because that's what saves. That's what has saved you. These prosperity gospels, these other gospels that are being preached, these guys who are slithering into the church and beginning to say, look, we don't need to suffer. Look, God has this whole other plan for us. They're wrong. That gospel doesn't save. This is the one who saves, or the one that saves. Let's remain in the Word of God because it is the, God, is the Word that saves and it's the Word that our neighbors, that our co-workers, that our friends, and that our enemies need. Because it's only by hearing the Word of God they will be saved. It is only through the hearing of the Word of God they will be saved. So as believers, as children of God, we have been given the Word of God that we would know it. That we would love it and we could share it with others. That's what our, our, mission, statement, our mission statement is. Be disciples who go make disciples who make disciples. And we do that through the Word of God. We never do it apart from the Word. We make disciples by sharing the Word of God with them. And yes, we, we love and, and we serve them. Everything we see in the Word of God, we, we try to apply. But we do it through the preaching of the Word of God. So remain in the Word of God, Timothy, because it's what saves you. There is no other gospel that saves. As Timberline, let's remain in the Word of God. It's the only Word that saves and so now, I want us to look at two amazing truths. And these two amazing truths could very well be reasons number three and four for why to stay in the gospel also. But I want to just kind of separate them so we see that these, these are amazing truths. Number one, the Bible originates from God. It's truth number one. The Bible originates from God. Look at verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's probably the most powerful verse in the Bible regarding the Word of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Here Paul says, it's breathed out. And breathed out means the literal, is the literal translation. You may have heard, you know, it's inspired. Um, it's the inspired Word of God. And basically what Paul is saying, all of Scripture comes from God. 
It doesn't come from man. It ultimately comes from God. It does not originate with man, which means that the original authors did not come up with the Word of God. It wasn't because they did some good thinking and said, you know what, this sounds good, we'll, we'll write it down now. But rather, I think Peter said it well in his second letter. This is what Peter says. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So men spoke, men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And and he did that in a mysterious way. Where somehow he didn't take over the men and they became like robots. But somehow God worked through their nature that they would write exactly what he would have them write. This means that ultimately Paul, neither Paul, neither Peter, neither Moses, or any other author is the ultimate author of the word of God. But that God is the author. That's what that means. It's breathed out by God. It comes from Him. And notice Paul says in verse 16, all Scripture. Verse 15, he said the sacred writings, which he meant the Old Testament. But now he says all Scripture, meaning Old Testament and New Testament. The testimony of Scripture is that the New Testament is in equal authority to the Old Testament. As the Old Testament was breathed out by God, so is the New Testament. And on the back of your sheets of paper, I have a list of headings and references that show, that testify. The New Testament is equally authoritative with the Old Testament. So I put that there for you. We don't have time to look at those this morning, but I want you to have those as resources. How can we trust the New Testament, someone may say. Look at those resources, and they show how the New Testament writers viewed the New Testament as equally authoritative with the Old Testament. So what does it mean that God's Word is breathed out, that it originates from Him? Well, Number one, it means God is a personal self-disclosing God. And I don't remember if I put these in your bulletin. If I did, then you only have two, um, and I added one this morning. So I don't know, so we'll get to it. I forgot to look. But number one, it means God is a personal self-disclosing God. It means God reveals himself. Think about it. He speaks. Just being all of that, God speaks. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1, he spoke and creation is there. He speaks. He speaks to man. He speaks to Moses through a burning bush. He calls Abraham, he calls Noah, he talks to Jacob, he talks to Isaac, he talks all throughout the Old Testament. He sends forth his son, who John 1.1 says, what is the the word of God? He comes forth. In Revelation 19, Jesus sits on the, the horse and is called the word of God. It's his title. God speaks to us. That's amazing. Like, he reveals himself. He's he's not a God that says, I don't want to be known. If God didn't speak, we would know very, very little of God. Very little of God. But we believe that there's a God, and he speaks, and he made us in his image, so that, guess what? We speak. Do you know that's why we speak? We speak because God speaks. We don't speak because of some biological evolution, and that somehow now we do it. We speak because God speaks and he made us to be like him. And he made it so he can talk to us and that we can talk to him. That's the testimony of scripture. God loves to talk to us and he loves for us to talk to him. In Matthew 7 it says he's a 
Father that loves for when we come and talk to him and give us give him his our prayer request that he would answer us. We speak because he speaks. Speaking is ultimately for the glory of God. That's why we speak. It's not to spread gossip. It's not to give lies. It's not to speak false gospels. It's to give glory to God. That's why we speak. That's why words are so incredibly powerful. That's why they hurt so much more than a fist. Those are words are meant to give glory to God. That's why we've been created, that we glorify God. And He's given us mouths to praise Him, to proclaim Him, to testify of Him. I hope that we never grow, uh, that we never cease to be in awe that God speaks. He reveals Himself to His Word, through His Word. Secondly, it means because the word is breathed out, it means the Bible comes with God's full authority. What God's word says is what God says. To obey God's word is to obey God. To rebel against the word of God is to rebel against God. That's what I mean. It's breathed out by God. It comes from Him with His full authority. This is why Jesus in John chapter 4 verse 15 said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will keep my word. Verse 21 in John 14, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So hear this. Our obedience to God's word is a demonstration of our trust and our love and our faith in God. Our obedience to God's word is the demonstration of our trust and our love and our faith in God. Do you know that? This is breathed out by God with his full authority. What this says is what God says. Our view of this is our view of God. That sink in. I think we can easily verbally agree with that, but practically we deny that. So about a year ago, 14, 15 months ago, Steph and I were looking for a house. And, and, and Lynn was kind enough to take us to so many houses, and so many were so terrible. <laughs> we were looking at house after house. Now, one thing Steph and I were doing, we knew we, we, we couldn't afford much. So we weren't looking at necessarily what we saw. We're looking at what could be. And that's the kind of fun part about looking at a house. You know, it's like, oh yeah, we could redo these walls. We, we could paint that. I could knock out that wall. We don't even need that. Um, we could totally re-landscape this yard. We could put a fence over there. I definitely have to build a shed. Um, you know, so, so all these kind of things. And we're looking at what could be. And that's great when you're buying a house. That's fun when you're buying a house. But it's dangerous when we do it with the Word of God. Because we can't do that with God's Word. God's Word comes to us ultimately from God's mouth. And so we, we can't come to it thinking that it's like a constitution that can be revised or a house that can be remodeled. And we struggle with things. We struggle with things like what God's Word says about divorce what it says about sexual morality, what it says about forgiveness, what it says about loving our enemies. And we go, well, you don't really understand what I've been through. You ever hear that? You don't really know what I've experienced. 
as if God's fully authoritative word is meant for other people and excludes your circumstances. As if God wasn't aware when he wrote this word, when it could breathe out from him, of what you were going to go through. So it's not really sufficient for our needs or for certain of our needs. That's what we do when we say, well, you don't really know what I've gone through. I can't really love my enemies. Well, I, I can't forgive them. You, you don't know what he did. And we began saying, well, God's word isn't really sufficient. God's really is, word isn't really authoritative, authoritative over all my life. It's only over certain parts of my life. But if God's word comes, breathed from him, then it comes with his full authority. And our obedience to it reflects our faith and our trust and our love in God. Just as when I ask my kids to do something and they do it, it reflects their love. But when we reject the word of God, when we rebel against the word of God, ultimately we're rebelling and rejecting God. Thirdly, the fact that God's word originates from God means it reflects his character. Meaning it's good, it's holy, it's full of grace, mercy, and peace. God is is holy, he's full of grace, mercy, and peace. So is his word. It's breathed out from him. It comes from him. And it's clear that the, the writers in Scripture saw this. If you go through the Psalms, the Psalms amazingly show their love for God and His Word. In Psalm 1-1, we see the, the very first Psalm, he says, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is the man who loves God's Word. Psalm 19.10, more to be desired, he's saying about God's Word, more is God's Word to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter than God, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Do you know that? Do you know that this is more valuable than your paycheck? You know that. This is more valuable than your house. This is more valuable than your savings account, your Roth IRAs, whatever you have. This is more valuable. And it is sweeter than honey. It is sweeter than whatever love you can find in whatever a person you think you can find it in. It's sweeter than that because it comes from God. Full of grace and love and mercy. Revealing to us God. Psalm 119, 176 verses long. Clearly, longest chapter in the Bible. Almost in the middle of the Bible. And it's fully devoted to the Word of God. In that psalm we see... I think there's a list of these up here uh, on the screen. This psalm shows that God's word blesses us. It keeps us from shame. It leads us to worship. It keeps us from sin. It is our joy. It is wonderful. It is all satisfying. It gives life. It strengthens us. It gives us boldness. It makes us wise. And we could keep going. I just thought that was enough as I was going through Psalm 119. I was just writing down everything it said about God's Word. I started trying to begin to, to put it in, in those kind of uh, categories there. My prayer for us, for Timberline, is that we would be a people of God's Word, that the reality of God's Word would shape the reality of life, that we would love God's Word, that we would hunger and thirst for God's Word, that we would truly see that this is more valuable is more beautiful, is more costly than anything else. It's precious. It's a treasure. I pray we understand that our love for God's word reflects our love for God. 
So second amazing truth. That's amazing truth number one, that it's breathed out by God. It originates with God. Second truth. The Bible equips every believer to live a life of godliness. In verse 16, Paul says, God's breathed out holy word is profitable. And then he begins to saying how? It teaches us truth. Teaches us the truth about God. Um, the word rebukes us when we believe the wrong thing. It corrects us when we sin and disobey God. And it trains us in righteousness. It's like our tutor. It comes alongside of us, instructs us in what we are to do and what we're not to do. Ultimately, what we see is that it equips us for every good work. It, it grows us in godliness. So the Bible is God's chosen method to prepare his church, you and I, believers, for good works. It's his chosen. It's God's chosen. It's not our chosen. It's God's chosen method to prepare the church. And here in 2 Timothy, Paul emphasizes the equipping power of God's word. If you look down in verse uh, 16, or verse 17, it says that the man of God may be competent, equipped. So both of those words are, are, are from the same word, equip, and, and Paul's just being redundant right there. And what his point is, is that the word of God super equips us. Like he's just being abundantly clear, the word of God equips. It lavishly equips us. It super equips us. We are very equipped. We are abundantly equipped. The word of God equips us. He's letting us know, in order to live a godly life, this is what will equip you. God's word. This is why in Ephesians 4, when Paul is talking about the church, he says, and God has given the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and, and do you remember the purpose of those? They're to build up the church. How do they build up the church? Well, all of those positions, the role is to preach the word. So it's not necessarily the apostles and the prophets and evangelists. It's not them, in, like themselves, necessarily building up the, the church. But it's the office that they have of proclaiming the word that builds up the church. So God has, has placed pastors and other people to specifically preach the word to equip the church, that we would all preach the word so the church would be equipped. And then in Ephesians 2, later in Ephesians 2.10, Paul says that God's word, um, he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God says that I've saved you, that you would do good work. And in 2 Timothy, we see he gives us his word that we'd be equipped to do good work. So if we put those together, God saves us to do good works, and by his grace, gives us his word to equip us for the what? The good works. So if we're going to do the good works, which he saved us to do, then we are to partake, we are to eat, we are to feast upon his word that equips us for the very good works that we're supposed to do. And it's all supplied by God. All His grace. By grace He saved us. By grace He gives us His word. By grace He equips us that we would live godly lives and do good works that He's called us to do. You know what this means? That right now we're worshiping God. We're being equipped by God right now through the preaching of His word. Like right now you're being equipped. This is one of the reasons we gather. We gather corporately, so corporately, together, we'd be equipped for his word, or by his word, for good works. 
And this doesn't mean we shouldn't also do it in small groups and individually also, but this is one way that we come together to collectively learn, encounter God, and be equipped for good works. I get asked, why don't we just do 20-minute sermons? Why do you got to go longer? Just so you know, there's some people that preach a little longer than I do. But we do close to 45-ish minutes. I ask you, how much do we want to feast on the Word of God? Now, of course, we could answer that question. We'll say, well, we should do it for 24 hours then. You know, when should we ever stop? So we, we could definitely come back like that. Or we could just do what Ezra and Nehemiah did, and they preached for about four to six hours at a time, and they stood the whole time. I mean, the congregation stood before them. We could do that. That might be hard. Um, but we want to let the Word of God have full presence here when we come. My prayer is that when anyone comes to gathering here at Timberline, they don't necessarily hear my voice. They don't necessarily just hear the voices of those singing. But everything is about God, and we come to Him through His Word, which is why the songs that are chosen every week are chosen to go along with the Word of God. I hope you notice that. We try very hard to have the songs complement what we see, to really be a praise of what we have found in God's Word. We want to exhort, the, to, to lift up the word of God and say, this is our food. This is our holy bread. This is the food that God has given his church that we would feast on it daily, regularly, weekly, that we'd be equipped, that we'd become godly, that we'd do the good works he has for us. This is why when I, when I talk to people about their spiritual life, one of my first questions usually is, how's your Bible reading? And then followed up shortly, what's God teaching you through his word? Because we can read the Bible and not try to learn from it. We can read the Bible and not try to encounter God. So my follow-up question is, and, and what's God's teaching you? What, God's, what is God teaching you through his word right now? How can we expect to grow in godliness if we're not feasting on the word? How can a plant grow if we don't water it? This is the food that God has given us. Now you may be saying, all right, hold on. How does me reading 2 Kings, where God sends Babylon to destroy Israel and take them into captive, increase me in godliness that I would produce good works? Or, or seriously, how, how reading in Leviticus about clean and unclean animals, how does that prepare me good for You ever wonder that one? Like going through the Bible reading plan, oh, we're in Leviticus again. Or like the first eight or nine chapters of Numbers where it's all genealogy, oh, we're in genealogies. Can I just skip? Is that okay? Will God know? Like, is that okay to do or not? No, it's not okay, and he knows. Um, but remember what we said. When we come to God's word, we're not coming for facts. We're coming to encounter God. We're coming to better understand who God is. So it's not the mere transfer of information. So when we read Leviticus, and we read that God says there's clean and unclean animals, what ultimately we're learning about is that God is, called, God is holy, and he calls his people to be holy. And all of those whom he calls, he makes holy. And he calls them to live differently, fully devoted to them, that our lives would be a sweet fragrance in this world, that they would look different. We're not to live just like the pagan nations, like around Israel at that time. Our lives should be very distinct from unbelievers. 
That's what we begin to learn as we come through Leviticus. And we see, wow, there's, there's all these regulations. God's really calling his people to be very different than the other nations around them. It's because God is holy. And those whom he calls, he makes holy. Because we're brought into his family that we'd be holy with him. When we read that God's people were taken into exile by Babylon, we see, wow, God is sovereign. He actually used Babylon as an instrument in his belt to, to go and, and reveal his wrath upon Israel because of their disobedience, to, to overcome them and to, and to take them in exile. We see that God was sovereign over the whole thing. We see how God hates idol worship. We see how God's, God is gracious and he preserves his people as he takes them into Babylon. And he, and he preserves them and allows them to flourish there. And then we see that even by his grace, he brings them back into the land that he has promised them. We see grace upon grace upon grace. We learn great things about the character of God. You see, the Bible doesn't address every specific situation you and I may go through. It doesn't tell me what happens when my computer, uh, you know, wigs out or how to change a car tire or maybe how to handle a very particular situation with a coworker or with a child or a bully at school. But the Bible does reveal to us God. And it reveals to us his character. It reveals to us how much he loves us and how by his grace he's making us more like him. That when we're in these situations, we know God is with us. We know his grace is continuing to be supplied to us. We know his spirit is strengthening us. We know that we're not alone. So when we're in these situations that we feel like the Bible does not particularly address, we know that because of his character, we know that because of the fruit that he's developing in us through his spirit, that we're able to continue to trust in him, that we're able to stand firm in our faith. Because Paul is saying, Timothy, stand firm in your faith. It is the word of God that equips you. It's not the false gospels. It's nothing else. And as Timberline, it is the word of God that equips us. As believers, we have been given the word so that we be equipped to live godly lives. We do not need to go find fresh words. We do not need to go find fresh words. Be very weary of little kids that see heaven. And then write a movie about it. Be very weary about that. Be very weary about people making millions of dollars about what heaven looks like. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I'm not saying that. So maybe you go see and go, oh, it's a great movie. But be very careful when things begin to give more description than what Scripture gives about heaven. Be very weary about that. Because we can start moving into false gospels pretty quickly. I'm not saying that's what it is. Don't be running out of here saying that movie, you know, I forget the name of it right now even. Um, Don't be saying I said it's a false gospel, but be very weary because those things can look appealing. They're very eye-appealing. They have the form of godliness, but are they godly? Are they? Are they biblical? Can we root everything that it says back into Scripture, or is it adding to Scripture? Be very, very careful. That's my little side rant. Um, I want to close with one illustration. But, well, before that, we don't add to the Word of God. We don't need fresh words. This is God's fresh Word. It was breathed out, and just as it was relevant, powerful, and authoritative then, it is today. Same Word, same God, same power, same authority, same relevance, same life-transforming power. You may remember the movie Back to the Future 2. I hope we're not to the point where that's like people don't know those movies yet. 
like, I hope we're not. Like, if you're a student here and you're like, man, back to the what? Uh, Michael J. Who? Like, I, I hope we're not there. Isn't that going to be a sad day when we can't use that reference, Back to the Future? But um, if you remember Back to the Future too, the, the um, Biff, um, Biff's the bad guy, and he... Uh, he, he becomes extremely wealthy. He finds a, a sports almanac from the future, and, um, and, and he comes back, and he makes m- millions and millions of dollars. He's a tycoon because he knows the outcome of every single sporting event. He knows the outcome of every single sporting event. So imagine, for like the next 50 years, you know the outcome of every single sporting event. So every bet you place is going to win, as long as you bet on the right one. You would never need to be sweating at the end of a game. You would never be, oh man, what's going to happen? Is my bet good? Did I do a good job betting on this team? It's coming down the line. You know who's going to win. You're never going to be in doubt. You're going to know, man, I know exactly what's going to happen. It would be ridiculous to bet on the losing team when you have the almanac that tells you who the winning team is. And I just want you to think, we have a book that is far more accurate, far more powerful than any sports almanac from the future because we have God's word. It reveals to us God. It is sweet. It is a treasure. And the more we read it, the more we'll grow in love with it. The more we, we, we pray, God, help me to encounter you as I read it today, we will grow in love with it. And as we do, we grow more in love with God. We'll better understand who God is. And we'll know how to better stand firm in our faith because we're constantly being equipped by God's word through his spirit working in it. And we'll grow in godliness. I want to encourage you to read God's word. Always on the ministry's table outside, we have um, Bible reading plans. I'm a big Bible reading person, uh, Bible reading plan person, because I love tools. I love tools that help. Just tools that say, hey, read here. Just let this be your guide. You know, on the one we have out there, there's four columns for every day. You can choose one column, two column, three column, or all four columns, or you can add a fifth column if you want. The point is just reading through the Bible and praying through it. Thank God, reveal yourself to me today. Help me to know who you are. It's your word breathed out by you. So I want to encourage you. Grow in your knowledge of God's word. For doing so, you'll grow in your knowledge of God. And by doing so, you will grow more in love with God. And by doing so, you'll be more equipped. And by doing so, you'll be able to do good works and stand firm in in this world. And you'll resist the false gospels. And you will lead others to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. Oh, God, we love you. you. You speak. And God, you speak to us today through your word. Your chosen means, which is your word. You speak. Speak to us today. And I pray that your speaking is clear. Not mine, but yours. Your words. God, I pray that that you continue to work right now, even as we go into singing praises to you and we take offering, we give back back our money to you because you're more valuable to us than money. That God, you would keep working in us the truth, the reality that your word is more beautiful than money. It is more more, it is sweeter than anything else in this world. It is more precious than anything else we can have. Because in it, God, we see you. And God, may we know that. I pray that as a church, we fall deeply in love with your word. Deeply in love with your word. Help us, God. God, as we leave today, I pray that you continue to, to work in our hearts and soften us to your, towards your word that we would all be convicted, that we would, we would take your word that you've given us